All right. Well, welcome, everyone, um, on this lovely summer day here in Omaha. We are finishing uh, our, gospel, our study of the Gospel of John today. I want to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 21. And then I want to introduce our study uh, in the book of Jonah. I hope you all were able to get the notes and either download them or print them out or wherever you do with that, because I will be referring to that introductory page or two uh, to the study of Jonah. That's very important. So if you have that um, close by, or if you don't have it close by, get it close by, get it on your computer, whatever, to, to, once we finish John. So let's get, uh, let's get started. Um, John chapter 21 is the last chapter of the book, and we just ran out of time last week and couldn't quite finish our study. So uh, just remind you of the context we'll start in verse nine here in just a moment. Jesus is resurrected. This will be his third post-resurrection appearance. I've given you a chart on those resurrection post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. But this one, the fishermen, there are seven of them, Peter and James and John and others, a total of seven. They have gone up to Galilee. Uh, their home base now is Capernaum. So the, where they are, the North Shore, I can show you where that is. We know exactly where that was. But uh, anyway, they are out fishing, and uh, Jesus is on the shore making breakfast for them. And um, they you know, jump off the ship. Uh, John recognizes it's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the ship and runs and so on. So verse 9, when they got on land, they uh, saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus, the servant. I always, I think I mentioned that last week, I always find this astonishing that here's the resurrected son of God, the God-man resurrected, still serving. And uh, it's, it's quite a remarkable scene. But Jesus says, continuing in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And that to me, that's important because John, the writer of this gospel, is a witness to this. He himself is a fisherman, and uh, they would count the fish. That was the normal thing, but he is telling us this is exactly what we caught. It's another one of the little testimonies. It is anecdotal, but it's a testimony to the accuracy of this witness. He's telling us exactly how many fish they caught, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Je Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, not one of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Again, I, I repeat, here's Jesus, the servant. He's still serving, even in his resurrected, glorified, majestic body. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself, revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, that's the context, and in, in a sense, verses 15 through verse 19 is kind of the most important part of the last chapter. The context to this, as you know, is before the crucifixion in the garden of the high priest Caiaphas, Peter had denied Jesus three times, as Christ had prophesied he would, and even one time he denied Jesus with profanity. And in Luke's account of the gospel, that third time that, uh, that Peter had denied Jesus, the Lord was walking up the steps of Caiaphas' house, and his eyes met Peter's eyes. 
And I've always reflected on that in just some meditation of what that must have been like for Peter and the enormity of the guilt, the enormity of the disappointment. He had let his Lord down just like the Lord had said, even though Peter boastfully had said, no matter what happens, even if I die, you know, and obviously uh, that was not true. So this is an important part of Peter's life. Jesus Christ restores Peter. He restores him to, to this position. It is not about salvation. It's not about what he's trying to merit. It's about the Lord's grace in restoring him. Peter had fallen, just like we all fall, just like we all stumble. The Lord, in his grace, seeks to restore Peter. So let me read this. I'm going to read verse 15 through 19 in its entirety, then I want to come back and kind of take it apart. Starting in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He, Peter, said to him, Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep, 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, there are a number of things I'd, I'd like to observe and focus on in this quite remarkable dialogue between the Lord Jesus and Peter. First of all, the focus, and you see it in verse 15, and then you see it in um, verse 16, and then finally you see it in verse um, uh, 17. There are three times Jesus poses the question, do you love me? However, in the Greek language, there are three key words for love, and Jesus uses two of them here. The first one, do you love me, in verse 15, is do you agapao, do you agape me? That, as you know, is the highest form of love. It's a self-sacrificing, self-emptying, other-centered love. So Jesus uses that. The first time, in verse 15, the second time in verse 16, and then in the 17, he changes to you phileomi. Phileo means uh, brotherly love, friendly kind of love. Now, some expositors struggle with whether we should make a distinction uh, between those two. Uh, it does seem to me that it's not just a coincidence or it's not just any kind of wordplay John is trying to capture the dialogue between Jesus and Peter, and the change in the term love that the Lord uses is important. So let's look at the dialogue with that in mind. Verse 15, Jesus says, now perhaps, by the way, we don't know this, but it would seem reasonable because of, of something that comes up in verse 20, but it seems reasonable that Jesus may have said to Peter, Peter, let's go for a walk along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've had breakfast because as 
as we're talking a little bit later on, John's in back of them. And I think there's a real chance here that we should understand this as they're taking a walk. So as they're walking, he says, Peter, Simon, do you agapao me? Do you love me with a sacrificial, other-centered love? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's response is not agapao. You know I phileo you. You know I love you like a friend. You know I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, okay, feed my lamb. Second time, do you love me? Do you agapao me? Do you love me with that self-sacrificing, other-centered love? Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you as a friend. I love you as a brother. Now, that that's important, it seems to me, in how Peter is responding to the incredible question of Jesus. Because in light of his responses, I denied you. <laughs> so that's the evidence that I don't agapao you. I don't love you in another centered, self-sacrificing way. So then the third question Jesus poses, do you love me? The Lord Jesus condescends and says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a brother, as a friend? And Peter responds, yes, you know that I love you phileo as a brother, as a, as a, as a friend. And so this exchange is not coincidental that it's three. Jesus asks him this question three times because Peter denied Jesus three times. So the Lord is restoring Peter. The fellowship and intimacy that Peter had enjoyed before his denial is restored by Jesus. And in a sense, Jesus is kind of asking Peter, do you really love me? I know you denied me. I forgive you for that. That's not going to be a barrier in our relationship. This is not going to be something that I'm going to hold over your head like the sword of Damocles for the rest of your life. Peter, I want to restore you because you have powerful work to do. You have, you have eternally significant work to do. Peter, you have to feel restored. You have to deal with your guilt. You have to deal with the shame. I'm going to help you deal with it. And so he gets Peter to, to admit that he loves him. And Jesus takes care of him. That is so important for you and me. Whatever we do that we think disappoints the Lord, it may or it may not, but from our perspective, we need to get that made right with the Lord. So we talk to him, and he immediately restores us. Jesus holds nothing against us. There is nothing you and I could ever do that is going to cause Jesus to love us more or less than he does right now. And so Peter needs to experience that. He needs to, he needs to feel that restoration, that forgiveness that he's restored. The other thing I want you to observe here is what the Lord Jesus says each time after Peter says, you know I love you. Each one of these is the language of a shepherd. Each one of these is the language of a shepherd caring for his sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. They're the three responses of the Lord Jesus. So what, what is really going on here? Peter is restored to his fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, and he now assumes the role 
Jesus has for him. He's going to be a pastor. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to feed his people with the word of God. He's going to tend. He's going to care. Tend means to care for and watch over and superintend. That's what a shepherd does. And that's why the Latin word for all that is pastor. That's where we get when we call our, you know, our, in our churches, we call them pastor such and such. It comes from the shepherd imagery, the shepherd metaphor. And so Jesus, it's, it's, it's really quite remarkable what Christ is doing. He's shifting the entire self-understanding of Peter. You're no longer a failed disciple who stumbled and fallen. You're no longer a fisherman which you are now doing, which was fine. They needed to eat. They went back to that just to be able to eat. You now have a whole new role. In the kingdom language, the kingdom of Christ that has now come to earth, invaded Satan's territory. Peter, you're now a shepherd. You're a pastor. You're going to teach my people the word, feed them. You're going to superintend and care for my people. And so it's just a it's a fantastic reorientation by the Lord Jesus of the role of Peter. And if you look at first Peter chapter five, remember that's one of the letters that that Peter writes in the new Testament. But if you look at first Peter chapter five, I believe it's about the first four verses, you see that self-understanding of Peter. And it's just, Peter will go out. He is a totally transformed person. And when Pentecost comes, as you know, in Acts 2, we studied that a couple years ago, in Acts 2, Peter will give one of the greatest sermons recorded in Scripture. And that's this transformation. This is what the Lord does to all of us. He transforms us. He forgives us. He, he justifies us, declares us righteous. And in that process of sanctification, he is restoring us. When we fall, when we stumble, when we make mistakes, when we, when we think we disappoint the Lord, he restores us. He doesn't want us to wallow in our guilt or wallow in our shame. He pulls us out of that. That's what he did for Peter here. And then finally, in verse 18, and John tells us this in verse 19, but what he's doing here, he, Jesus, is doing here, is he's describing how Peter's going to die. And we know, we know that Peter is crucified. Tradition says that he, he, dis, he determined to be crucified upside down. That's not in the Bible, but it's, it's in the extra-biblical uh, extra material that he did indeed insist that Rome, uh, he was executed in AD 68 in the heights of Nero's persecution. And Peter did insist and demand, and tradition says he was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner my Lord was. So it's th- this paragraph, verse 15 through, eight, uh, through 19, is the Lord Jesus restoring Peter, giving his new kingdom assignment and declaring to him, you're going to be martyred and you are going to, you're going to die in the same way I do. Stretch out your hands. And that is, as, Peter, as John says in verse 19, describing how Jesus would die. So to me, this passage, it's, for me, it's one of the most meaningful passages in a very personal way, in a very applicational way in the gospel of John and really indeed in, in the entire New Testament because it's the heart of Jesus restoring one of the giants of the early church and giving him a new kingdom assignment. And that's what Jesus does to each one of us. He saves us. 
He keeps restoring us when we fall, and he's giving us new assignments each day. And I don't necessarily mean vocational change or assignment, but he's giving us assignments each day in what Erwin Mamanix calls those divine appointments to represent Christ day in and day out. So I, I'm glad we were able to do this at the beginning of the class today and give really singular focus to it. Any questions or comments before we finish the book? Yeah, Jim, I had a question regarding um, when uh, Peter uh, responds the third time, is he saying I phileo you then, or is he still at the same? I think we lost. Right. Uh, are you saying Peter's response to in his use of the word love? Yeah. Yeah, his, each one of his responses, that is now Peter's response, he always uses phileo, the brotherly, friendly love. Peter never uses the agapao love. Okay. And then just the, just the encouragement you've given us today when we're talking about someone who probably maybe is just a, a child uh, in their growth of their Christianity, <clears throat> becomes discouraged and, uh, he's, and says, I don't think God can ever forgive me. Well, that, right, that, that, that of course, is not true. <laughs> and uh, it, it is, I've referred this uh, passage to a lot of folks over the years who have struggled with a, you know, whatever it was that they did. And again, this is after they trusted Christ. But even if you're talking to someone before they make the decision of Christ, I'm such an evil person, God could never accept me, never forgive me. That is simply not true. And you can cite zillions of examples from the from the scriptures but this passage and that's why i like to use it with a believer specifically who has fallen has sinned has done something they've it's they're so guilt-ridden they're so ashamed of what they've done that they don't think that jesus can really ever forgive them and accept them and let's use the word i think the right word restore them god is in the business of restoring us in our, in our sanctified walk with him, he's constantly restoring us. He's doing that to me every day. But, I mean, you always disappoint. You always do something that you, you're pretty certain is wrong or displeases the Lord or whatever. I've, I've encouraged people to read this. Remember what Peter did. He vowed he would never deny Christ, would never betray Christ. He did that precisely. And even one time with profanity. And he looked at Jesus when that third time. This, the guilt and shame that Peter must have felt is almost unimaginable because he did this personally to Jesus. He had been with him for three years. But Jesus, and that's the whole point of this section, Jesus goes out of his way to, in a determined, focused way to restore Peter. And that, I believe, is the turning point in Peter's relationship with God. Not salvation, but the turning point of, of understanding what Peter writes about in his epistles. The grace and mercy of God in his salvation and in his ongoing sanctifying grace. It is a tremendously important passage. Never, ever, ever will God there's let's put it another way there is nothing we can do as the children of god that will prohibit jesus from restoring us to fellowship he's Thank that you. kind of god and that is part of you know the amazing grace <laughs> that him 
and a part of that amazing grace of our God. So it's a very, very important chapter, section of this chapter. All right, no other questions. Let's. Uh, let's... I actually have uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to revisit uh, 2112. Um, I know we kind of touched on that lightly, which was the no one ever dared ask, who are you? Is the, is the who are you um, a, a sign of identification or a sign of authority? Because that one has always kind of made me scratch my head. You know, is it that his appearance is so marred? Um, but then they seem to be convinced that it's Jesus. Then all of a sudden they're sitting there really close to him. It's like, uh, who is this guy? But then, yeah, um, that it, it is a little bit perplexing. And Russ, I'm not really sure that I can answer it quite the way you want me to answer it. Oh, I'm because, not looking for a want. I'm just uh, looking no, no, for additional that, information because this well, one has I, always been difficult well, for me. Part of the part of the the challenge here when we read that verse is. Um, it, it's we're, we're kind of trying to understand what is going on in the minds and hearts of these men. We already know that they had recognized it was Jesus because John says, you know, it's the Lord and Peter jumps out of the boat. And so, you know, I mean, they knew it was Jesus. So when John says, no one dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Um, it probably it probably has the, the in the whole sense of they know it's the Lord Jesus, but who are you? You're the resurrected. You're the you're the, the you come back to life. You've conquered death, Lord, aren't you? So it's like this understanding. Of, of really, this is the resurrected Jesus as promised. I mean, they knew it was the Lord. They saw him. But I think you were intimating that as well. For yeah, what, is, what is who are you from in the language? What, is that, what does that mean? Is it lit, would we transliterate it exactly as we see it in, in English? Yeah. Or is there any other? Yeah, no, there, there's nothing. <laughs> nothing there. There's okay. no real nuance there in the yeah. original language. But I mean, it's 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 rhetorical, I think, mm. in the sense that I mean they knew it was Jesus, but the "Who are you?" is, yeah, you you are the resurrected Lord Jesus, as you had promised. You have conquered our enemy death. They knew this. So John is saying they had all reached the self-evident conclusion that this was Jesus. There's no one, no one there on the North Shore that's perplexed. There are no doubting Thomases there. There's no one trying to figure out, is this really the Lord Jesus? I'm not so sure. You know, there's no Thomas among this group. There, Peter, excuse me, John is trying to capture this certainty of understanding. They know who it is. There are no doubts. There's no second guessing. There's no perplexed character on that North Shore. So I have always looked at verse 12 as a confirmation of the certainty. This is Jesus, and they know it. See, There's no one questioning. There's no one doubting. Right. 
I'm, I'm looking at this and if I could remove the word dared, like, like they're sitting around nudging each other going, you ask him, you ask him. And nobody dared um, ask like that there were, that they had a question, but why would there be dared? Right. What is, what does dared mean? Is that transliterate the same way as well? Well, I think uh, the, the translation of the Greek term is, is correct dared, but it has the idea that now none of the disciples had any doubts where they would ask him, who are you? I mean, you, when you, when you maybe, when, you know, as a teenager or as a child, you dare your friend to, Jump off the the diving board into the swimming pool. I mm -hmm. dare you to. That's not the sense of this. No, I I get the idea that if it was all of us say, well, when Jim comes on, ask him if he wants us to sing Happy Birthday. No, you ask him. No, and then no one dared ask you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad none of you because we knew dare it, to start because we knew you weren't going to like it, right? Yeah, well, that, well, then you you've gone to know me quite well. That's the conclusion. <laughs> Um, but I mean, again, Russ, in back of the, the translation of the word into dare is a doubt. No one dared to have a doubt. Who are you? They knew it. Mm -hmm. So to me, again, it, it's a statement. This verse is a statement of certainty. It's an affirmation. It doesn't read, it doesn't translate that way in English. That's why I've always struggled with it. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, but, hey, is that, is that Jim? Uh, I, I don't know. You ask him, is it, is it really him? You know, that, I, that's. Yeah. I would really be bothered if the verse ended, who are you? And that was it. Mm -hmm. But John answers right. the rhetorical question. They knew it was the Lord. Right. There is no doubt. There's no apprehension. There's no uncertainty. There's no ambiguity. They knew it was the Lord. And I, I let me, I think I said it this way earlier. Among these seven, and that's how many were there in the North Shore, there are no doubting Thomases. There is, this is Jesus. And so that, that, is just a, that is just an amazing affirmation. But two, remember that the last time they had seen Jesus, because there have been two previous appearances, you know, he has been revealing himself in his resurrected body. Perhaps part of this, too, is, is the role Jesus is still playing. He's still serving them. And I mean, it's just, uh, this, is, this is a remarkable, I mean, to me, I, when I've thought and meditated on this and a couple of the other, I've, I've tried to, what was the emotion of these men? What was the emotional level of these men? I mean, you, you, you have to really try to put yourself in their place. That is extremely difficult to do. But they had been with Jesus for, you know, three years or so. They've been with him for, through everything. They'd seen him crucified, etc. Now they've seen him resurrected. This is the third time they've seen him in his resurrected body. And they're still, he's still serving us. <laughs> he washed our feet, John third. He's still serving us, which is an amazing, and the emotion of these men, the emotional roller coasters they're going through as they're, just observing and watching and processing. I mean, they are the they are privileged, unique individuals. But for you and me, to I put ourselves, I think I would have been an emotional basket case. You know, the exhilaration that Jesus has come, and yet 
you know, the incredible ways in which he's serving, the incredible words that he's saying, and then for Peter to experience what we just finished studying, this restoration uh, uh, is an amazing act of grace on God's part. Well, let's conclude our study then of the book. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, you already know that's John. Following them, the one who had been crying at the table close to him and said, Lord, who is that's going to betray you? Peter saw him and said, what about this man, Lord? Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. In a very real sense in verse 22, Jesus is saying, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. How he's going to die, what's going to happen, that's none of your business. So the saying spread abroad, the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. He just said, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? Jesus is using the language of it doesn't matter. I'm the sovereign here. What I decide is what's going to happen. It's none of your business. I focused on you, Peter. Don't worry about the rest of these people. I will accomplish what I want to accomplish in and through them. I gave you the kingdom assignment. That's what you focus on. This is a disciple. Now, John's now very autobiographical, very personal. Verse 24. This is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And that's John is talking about the book that he's written, which we are now finishing our study of. And Jesus, excuse me, John, and notice, notice that important witness about these things. And this testimony is true. Those two terms, witness and testimony, are revelations. These are revelations of truth about Jesus Christ. This is a revelation, a witness of Jesus Christ that is a true witness. And then it's not false. It's not fake. This is truth. And John says, I saw all this with my own eyes. I've written it down, and it's true. And then he adds this really amazing statement. Verse 25, the last verse of the book. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I want you to think with me about that. That is not only referring to the three years of his public ministry. Remember, he's God. So go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Many, many, many months ago when we studied this. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Because we learned in our study that Jesus is the creator. That's the Trinitarian nature of God. So John is saying, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did from the creation of the world until now, there are not enough books to contain everything I would need to write. And so this uh, extraordinary comment of, of John is made through the grid and perspective of eternity. He is, as, as we learned in John chapter 1, 1 through 18, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And, you know, remember that, that important statement. 
So this is only to be referring, can only be understood as referring to the eternal nature of Jesus. And that, that therefore gives added meaning to Jesus as the great I am, Jesus as the God-man. He is the eternal, coexistent, co-essential, co-eternal son of God. And so it, it's a great way to end the book. Because the thesis of the book of John, as you know, is that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He is the great I am, John 8, 58. And John therefore concludes his book with another statement of the eternality, omniscience, omnipotence, creating creative power of the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, Jesus the Christ. Well, it's always fun to finish a book, but we don't get to do that too often. So in a triumphant note, I say we're done with the book of John. Any questions on 21 chapters of material? I have a question, doctor. Yes. I'm going back to where Jesus and Peter, Peter had been restored, and then he turns and he sees John following. And my translation says, what about him? Does that indicate to you that Peter was still uncertain about whether he was going to be the leader or that yeah, because John was the one that was loved, apparently, I think most of the disciples might have agreed with that. So do you have any insight on that? Well, uh, it, it could be, but I, I'm not sure that the content of his question yeah, there in verse 21 is about leadership issues What's his role? He's just, he's asking him about, I think, his death. Because the the last thing that Jesus had said to Peter was about the, 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 the way in which he was going to die, verse 18. And so I think as they're presumably walking along the shore, Peter turns around and says, well, what about this guy? How's he going to die? And Peter's and Jesus' response seems to indicate that's the essence of the question. If it's my will that he remain until I come, i.e. he not die, what's that to you? So, John, I think the question is not so much about leadership but and any role in leadership. It's about how's he going to die. And Jesus' response is, is, is quite caustic, really. That's none of your business. Thank you. I'll decide how he's going to die. And if I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? I am the sovereign Lord. And so it's a caustic, gentle, loving rebuke, Jesus saying to Peter, that's none of your business. And in a real sense, that's important for all of us. The Lord Jesus has chosen each one of us. He has chosen us to do some work that he wants us to do, whatever the nature of that is. And the one thing he does not want us to do is to compare ourselves with one another. When it comes to spiritual things, to compare with another Christian is a lethal, wrong thing to do. Because the one thing we see over and over again is we have a very personal relationship with the living God. And that loving God has assignments and things he wants us to do. And that's between him and me. It's not anyone else's business. And to compare, to compare one with another as Christians is lethal. And in my judgment, because I have I've been involved in many situations where the, the residue of people trying to compare themselves in spiritual things, it's lethal. It's horrible. 
We're not supposed to do that. And I think that's one of the applicational points to draw from this. Peter, that's none of your business. I've given you your kingdom assignment and how you're going to die is important. I just told you that. It doesn't matter how John's going to die. It's none of your business. Jim, do you, do you think that this was uh, a, a sharp rebuke then or just a, a, a clear statement of, of that wasn't well, really I mean, how, how do you do it? Well, you're using the adjective a sharp rebuke. Uh, I mean, it's a rebuke. I think it's kind of caustic. So, yeah, maybe. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. The tone of Jesus' voice or anything, we can't really determine. But, uh, I mean, it is a rebuke of, of Peter. In effect, like I've said now about four or five times, Peter, that's none of your business. <laughs> you have enough to be concerned about. I've given you a kingdom assignment, and that's what going to have you do. Uh, what's going to happen with John, how he's going to die, and so on, that's none of your business. And you see, I think Jesus is stopping in the tracks what is something that we all struggle with, and that was true, I think, of Peter, always comparing ourselves. Well, that's what I'm going to do. What's he going to do? Is he going to, is he going to have something more to do than me? And, and wait a minute, Lord, that's not fair, because the result when you do that is, that's not fair. And Jesus is saying, this is none of your business. Yeah. Thank you. I've given you assignment. I've given you the gifts. I've given you everything you need. Now get started with that and don't compare yourself with anybody else. And I think that is, I mean, I, in my own personal life and ministry, that is something I've never particularly struggled with. Praise be to God. But to compare yourself with other people in any area of life, but especially in spiritual things, is absolutely is absolutely vain, empty, and counterproductive. Because every, every one of us is unique. God has created us uniquely. He's, he's saved us uniquely. He's given us assignments uniquely. The main job we have is, have I been a good steward of what God has asked me to do? Period. Not what anyone else is doing. Unless, you know, but anyway, the point so that's all I have to say about that. Arsh Gump said that 21 and a half years ago, and I still think it's a great way to end the discussion. I have uh, I have one more question. I'm sorry. Um, going back to, I just saw something that uh, might be useful in uh, 2112. He says that he says, "Come and have breakfast." Yeah. So um, could this be the same thing as when he's washing the disciples' feet and Peter says, no, 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 you're, you're too high for that. I, I'm not going to participate. Could that be what they're referring to? You know, because he's serving them breakfast. There's that, um, you know, we have less, we're more egalitarian. We have less of a positional strata in society than, than they did back then. So could that be something that I'm missing? Are you... You mean in terms of the context of verse 12 then? Is that what yeah, you mean? Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Yeah. Let me serve right. you breakfast. And it's right. like, no, no, no. It's, it's like, no, we we know who this is. We're we're not gonna we're not gonna question this anymore. You know, well, yeah, that I mean that could, yes, that could be, but that would go along with the it, there's just no doubt, no quibbling about what's going on. We know right. who Jesus is. So yeah, that would fit. I think it's part of that that context. 
Interesting. The, rhetor the rhetorical question, who are you? It's a self, they already know. And that's why John says they knew it was the Lord. There's not any quibbling. And I mean, I think it's an amazing understanding among these seven individuals of who Jesus is and, and what he's accomplished. And that this whole idea of him serving has just been a theme right. throughout his ministry. Right. Uh, who so are you is not a sub is not a question of identity. Like I don't not. recognize you. No. It is who do you think you are to be doing my laundry? You're my God, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and it's like no, no, no one even questions it anymore because right. now we're starting to get it. We know who this guy is. That's right. That seems yeah. to fit. It more. does. It's exactly right. And it is. It fits too then with the assignment that Jesus gives to Peter mm -hmm. to to be a pastor to. Feed and tend and feed is to serve. <laughs> uh -huh. And the major theme of the scriptures is to lead us to serve and to serve us to lead. Right. And Jesus if you want to be great, that. you got to be the servant of all. Right. It's right. like they're it's finally starting yep. to sink in. Yep. Yep. He is our model, and we're going to follow him. I'm, I hope you enjoyed and were blessed by the study of John. It it is a unique gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke. And yet, it, I think it's one of the most powerful Gospels of the four. And it teaches us with crystal clear clarity, Jesus as the God-man, the great I am. I, I spent a little time uh, connecting with Lyle Junes this week. Uh, as you know, I think a couple weeks ago, Woody told us about that. He had contracted COVID. He was in the hospital. He was really in bad shape. He was on oxygen. But he's home now. He's extremely weak and still having a little trouble breathing. But I'd like to pray for Lyle. As we close, he'd ask that we do that, and we'll continue to pray for Fred. Join me as we pray here. Lord, thank you for the time we've had in studying, uh, finishing our studying of the tremendously important book of John. It's one of my favorite gospels because of how Jesus is presented. It's such a unique book. I hope it's been a blessing to the men. We remember Lyle today. Thank you for preserving his life. Thank you that he is doing better continue to strengthen his body and help Fred too as he's continuing to heal and just continue to restore him to full health in the weeks and months to come. So I commit these men to you, give them a good rest of this week, and we trust each one to you that they are continuing to grow in your sanctifying grace as men of strong faith, men of God who represent you well. We pray in Christ's name. See you, man. See you. Thank Thanks, you. Jim. Have a good week. Have a good week. Bye.